I'm Chandra Jenkins, Executive Director of the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. We are proud to sponsor this very special series from Add Passion and Stir that focuses on the contributions of young adults fighting to end childhood hunger here in the United States. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today with what we think of as the next generation of leaders. My sister and I have been at Share Our Strength for what, Debbie? About 10 years. We want to say, yeah, about 10 years, about 34 years. Um, and when we started Share Our Strength and our work on childhood hunger in the United States, we were somewhere between the age of our two guests, between <laughs> the age of Luz Holmes and Alex McCoy. But now we're ancient. And so the future <laughs> depends on both of you, which is why you're here. Um, we still have young spirit, though. Uh, Luz Holmes, thanks for being here. You were actually a youth ambassador for Share Our Strength. Yes, I was. Uh, and now you're working for the mayor of Hartford, Connecticut. I am. Gladly, yes. Okay. So I currently, I just got the position, but um, I was working for the Health and Human Services of the city of Hartford, but I was able to get a promotion, and now I'm actually working for the mayor. All right. Well, I want to come back and talk about your experience as a youth ambassador because uh, it's one of the things I'm really proud of at Share Our Strength. It really is kind of seeding the next generation of leaders on a whole range of social issues. Uh, and Alex McCoy, hey, how known you doing? for a lot of things, most recently <laughs> Lucky Buns, um, yep, yep. which is pretty exciting. New restaurant here in the Washington area. Yeah, fun spot, corner of uh, 18th and Florida and Adams Morgan. Uh, live music, burgers, fried chicken, just just a really casual, laid back, come have some fun, you know, forget your day job kind of a spot. Wow, so that sounds like it. a good place. <laughs> um, and my sister... Uh, I know has already talked to you about your French fries because my sister like talks about fries. French fries more than just about anybody I've ever met. But why don't you start us off by telling us what, what we need to know about the fries? Well, um, well, fries are one of the great foods of the world. That's that's the that's the starting point. What well, I mean, I have this this kind of pet peeve of mine when I whenever I go to a restaurant, you can tell a lot about a restaurant by their fries, fries and salad with dressings. You, with you, you know what I mean? And what do you look for? Well, if they're going to make their own fries and make their own salad dressing, you know that they're probably making everything else pretty well if they're going to oh. take the time. Because fries are actually quite difficult to make. You know, you have to cut them, you have to blanch them. The starch content, the sugar content change, they vary by the by the season. So if someone's really taking the time to like go through that process and triple cook them and do it the right way, then then chances are they know what, the bigger stuff's going to be pretty good. That's yeah, so great. It, That's it's so like cool. kind of it's one of those. One of those like uh, one of those things that I look for in a Predictor. restaurant. Exactly, Predictor. exactly. So, you know, so when we did this, it, it we, we had to do you know hand cut French fries and and um, well, they're really chips. They're English style chips, and big thick cut. We use Kennebec potatoes, hand cut them every day, blanch them, you know, soak them overnight. They're just really tasty, tasty, uh, <laughs> tasty, tasty French fries. And then we do you know curry sauce and malt vinegar mayo and a whole bunch of different sauces on top. So you're you, getting you may get more excited about French fries than my sister. <laughs> I love them, but my sister How Debbie, God, God bless you. One of the reasons we've been focused on French fries this week, and yeah. we'll, we'll move off this topic <laughs> in a minute. I promise. We promise. There you go. My son is uh, my son is turning 13, and he's anaphylactic allergic to oh, really? all fish, and French fries are often fried where restaurants. Fry fish, calamari yeah. specifically, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, just the calamari shellfish fire. or any kind of fish. So my sister wanted Nate to have French fries, and she's been on a search for Washington restaurants that don't fry their fries. We don't have a fish. single bit of seafood in the restaurant, so you've got okay. you've right. no problem. You'll have we're no problem. Com- we're coming fries. in on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're making this happen. <laughs> we're making this happen. Uh, Alex, how did you become a chef? Um, well, it, it, you know, I well, my mom really uh, first and foremost. My mother was a chef growing up, professional. Um, she she had a catering company, um, so a little bit professional. She was a teacher and a chef and an artist, really incredible woman. Um, and when we were growing up as children, we were always in the kitchen cooking soups. And it's one of those things I don't think my brother, sister, and I really realized that we were being taught or we were being trained as a young age because it's just kind of how we did things, you know? Mm-hmm. So we go to other people's houses and, like, the food wasn't very good. And we're like, we don't understand why this food isn't, <laughs> wasn't this good food, you know? Uh, and... I mean, every every day it was all homemade nutrition. Like we didn't have snacks. It wasn't like chips and and sweets and stuff like that. We made everything from scratch. And you know, high school, uh, middle school. You know, my my uh, mom always kind of encouraged us to make our own meals for for lunch. She wanted us to kind of be creative. 
And, uh, you know, so, so we always knew how to do it. I never actually wanted to be a chef when I was a kid. My father uh, was a lobbyist, and, and he did a lot of work in foreign policy, and he worked for Commonics. Here, here in Washington. Here in Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah, I grew up, born and raised here in D.C. So I always wanted to do that. I wanted to get into politics. I wanted to, you know, do that, kind of that side of things. And, uh, and I remember... Um, you know, going in and uh, to his office and helping him out, and I just I, like I hated it. It's just like the worst. <laughs> sitting sitting in an office um, just didn't it just didn't sit well for me. Um, so I was like, ah, oh, I guess I'm, I don't I don't know what I'm gonna do now, and I'm gonna have to do this. But I was always in restaurant. I was always working as a waiter, like bartender, and then just one day it just kind of like clicked. I was like, man, I've loved this my entire life. I keep coming back to it. Uh, I can't imagine doing anything else. And just that moment, you know, when it clicked. I just have been all in ever since. And no, I was, no training? No No training. Kind of real, I've wow. actually, I have a really kind of weird background. I've, I've never worked under a chef ever in my li- entire life. So really no training. No like, training. Not, not only no culinary yeah. school. I, I've like, worked. I've never heard of this. I've, it, it's, it's crazy. I've worked with. There's, I've hope, worked there's with hope for chef. all of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I had a very unconventional route. I mean, I didn't, um, you know, I, I grew up in a kitchen with my, with my family and, and I had the understanding of flavors and. You know, I knew how to make ma- you know mother sauces by the time I was you know sixteen and seventeen years old. Just mother because, sauces meaning the you know your bechamel like the, sauce, yeah, yeah the, exactly like your the main sauces. exactly like okay. the main the main sauces mother and sauces. and um, and when I was when I was seventeen years old, I started working at this little sandwich shop in Bethesda, Maryland, and the owner, who's now actually my business partner at Lucky Buns, which is kind of funny how things come you know f- full circle. His chef had just left right as I was coming. Me being the 17-year-old kid that thought he could do anything, just jumped in and was like, you know, can I, can I just take over the kitchen? I know how to cook. I want to make some recipes. And, and he, he took me under the wing and started teaching me how to run a kitchen and how to order and how to, you know, portion things out and how to cost things out. And that ended up parlaying itself into another kind of kitchen manager position, another kitchen manager position. And which then worked its way into me owning a restaurant. And it just, you know, over the years, it's always kind of, I've always kind of been in that position in the kitchen. Um, So I never actually worked under a chef. I always kind of taught myself. And yeah, and I, and I, really unusual. Yeah. It could be a first bill in all the chefs. (laughs) I've worked with incredible chefs and I've learned a lot from other chefs, but not in the capacity of of being employed by them, you know? So, Um, you know. And Luz, you're just, Kind of starting out because you're just out of school, right? You're just I am uh, graduated fresh. in 2017 mm-hmm. from where? The University of St. Joseph's. Studying what? Um, public health and a child study minor. And do you cook? Well, I don't. I don't think I can match um, Alex, but I mean, I try to do some things in the kitchen oh, here and there. <laughs> um, well, one of the reasons I'm excited that you're on the show is we have had. Uh, youth ambassadors uh, who have been on the show before. So first, I want you to just kind of describe what your experience was with, uh, I think you were uh, posted in Connecticut, right? Yes. Within, within Hunger, Connecticut. Uh, but we should also um, point out that, you know, one of the great things about this has been the Sodexo Foundation mm-hmm. has invested in a whole range of anti, uh, anti-hunger activities. But they've been particularly focused on making sure that young people have an opportunity yes. to really get involved. So how did you become a youth ambassador? How did hunger become uh, an issue that you care about? So um, if you really want to talk about how it became an issue, um, I grew up um, and I experienced it firsthand. So um, it was always in me, you know, and, and and when you finally get the opportunity for that, you know, that issue or that topic to pop up and for you to be able to do something about it. Um, that's kind of how I um, wanted to take on this um, project. So um, I was in college, um, and I was applying to, you know, just some ways for me to get into the community and um, more and get involved into my community and figure out where I wanted to be, you know, what topics, what concentration, what track I wanted to go on. So um, my, um, my school advisor, she was really instrumental in helping me find um, some topics that I like to focus on. Um, and so I ended up seeing this um, in one of our announcements. She sent it to me. I applied, um, did my interview, and um, about two days later, I ended up getting called back um, for my second. So then I went in, um, and I basically, you know, just explained, 
you know, how I wanted to be instrumental in my community, um, how I wanted to take this opportunity to give back to my community through hunger um, because it was so dear and close to me as a young child. Um, and I ended up getting them the ambassador position. So, wow, Fantastic. So did you grow up in Hartford or in <laughs> Connecticut? Yes, I grew up in Hartford. Um, I was born in New Haven, but after I was born in New Haven, I traveled to Florida, Alabama, South Carolina. Um, but when I was about um, five, I came back to Hartford, and from there I've been here, Got been it. in Connecticut. Uh, and where, and were you, when you say you experienced hunger, was that uh, meaning like your family um, used food assistance programs or school lunch or school breakfast, um, or what was kind of the situation, if you're comfortable talking yes, about it? Yes, yeah. definitely. Um, so I will, I'm the youngest of five children, okay. um, and my mother was a single mother. Um, and so when we were living in um, Florida, getting assistance was a lot harder. Um, so we did experience, you know, times when we would have to eat, you know, smaller portions of food and we would go to school and we would be hungry, but we knew that, you know, my mom would always have something for us, but there was not like we can go into the refrigerator and just take something. We always had to, um, be cautious of there being five of us. Right. right? Um, and it was always, you know, known to us that the boys ate a lot more. So the girls had to be a little bit more cautious about, you know, getting seconds or getting thirds of things. Um, we eventually ended up getting food assistance. Um, but my mother was always a caring person. We had neighbors that were a lot um, lot less fortunate than us. Um, so whenever we could get, you know, something in bulk, whether it was, you know, large amounts of milk or something like that, she always cared about our neighbors as well. So she was really good friends with them. And I, I remember one Christmas... We had, she was able to get us gifts because we have a supportive family. She was able to get us gifts and everything. And we found out that the neighbors had six children and they didn't have any gifts. Um, and we were really close with them. So she had us um, wrap. So we opened the gifts um, and she had us choose one gift out of, you know, the three or four gifts that we got. Um, and we wrapped it back up. And then we walked over to the neighbor's house and we get, sat down with them. They, the um, neighbor's mother and my mother cooked a meal and we ate together and we presented our gifts to the kids. And so um, I think giving back was always something that was instilled in me. Um, how, old, how old were you at the time? I uh, was like, I remember this um, and I was like four. Yeah, you remember that clearly. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's um, yeah. situations like that that stay with you. Yep. Five kids is a lot for, yeah. uh, you know, two, two parents, <laughs> but it's like unfathomable for one well, you know, in a lot of ways, Share Our Strength exists as the bridge between, you know, your life experiences and Alex's life experiences, because we all know that in this country, right, hunger is unnecessary. We enjoy, we have mm -hmm. food and we have food programs in abundance and we enjoy their blessings. And mostly we get to, you know, many of us get to celebrate and, you know, uh, savor food that way. Uh, and then the notion that there's, you know, families not very far from us in most communities that don't have it is the reason that I think, you know, Alex's profession, the restaurant and the chef and the culinary community has so risen to the occasion yeah. and made such a powerful impact on the fight against hunger. You're, of course, asked to do a million things, but yeah. hunger is one that uh, this industry has just really changed. I mean, it's just, to me, the fact that there are hungry people in this country, it's, just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, we're one of the most wasteful nations in the world. Um, and especially, I think, from my perspective, when I order food and I see how food is ordered, how much waste comes out of restaurants, um, you know, we try and to, I try to prevent as much waste as possible just in general. I mean, because financially it makes sense. But, you know, I've I've I know chefs that especially in some of the fine dining restaurants that end up throwing away a ton of their food and it, it just goes into the garbage. I um, some of it's preventable, but some of it's some not of it's some. Exactly. I mean, some of it is preventable. Some of it some of it isn't. Um, you know, but I think even larger than that, and I was reading the other day, and I'm sure you are all very familiar with this, but like the produce industry in this country, where, you know, when we go to the supermarket and we see like a big, beautiful apple, you know, uh, I think this, the statistic that I read was something like, you know, 50% of those apples are ending up in the garbage because they're blemished or they're, they're imperfections. And that's, that's food that people could be eating. Perfectly you know, we, we've healthy, got, perfectly nutritious. It, it just doesn't look as it nice. It doesn't right look, it doesn't look, and, and that to me, the, the fact that that's not going into hungry, you know, children's mouths yeah. and to hungry, hungry families, 
because uh, for some of these big businesses, economically, it doesn't make sense to to find places to put them when they can just dump them in a in a landfill somewhere. Yeah. It, it's ridiculous to me, absolutely ridiculous. Because we all have an obligation to help each other, and especially in the food service industry. I mean, and just to care enough to like figure out yeah, a way to exactly. Yeah, you know, we've got one of our guests that's uh, coming up on the show in a couple of weeks is the founder of um, Trader Joe's, uh, Doug yeah. Walsh, and he's opened up another kind of. Uh, supermarket called yeah, yeah. Daily Table. I heard right? about that, and, and, and I think that's exactly what you're I think that's about. incredible. Yeah, yeah. So the, we're gonna have them on the show in a few yeah. weeks. So, and so the Daily Table is a uh, it's a grocery store in um, uh, Roxbury in Boston, uh, in which uh, they get very healthy produce, um, and they buy it in bulk, or they get it donated from Amazon or other places, uh, and they sell it at prices that are affordable yeah. for yeah. families, many families on food assistance. Lose uh, your siblings. Do any of them uh, feel as connected to the issue as you you have described for yourself? Um, I can't really. I have um, a different type of passion, you know, for making a change, and so um, I'm I'm positive that they um, could definitely they definitely have um, you know some remembrance of it, and um, even now, you know, as a college student, full-time worker, you know, even now I'm like, ooh, groceries are just <laughs> a topic of discussion because, you know, you're doing everything that you can, but it's still, you know, if you want to get those healthy groceries, that's a lot more, you know, money, you know, so um, it's definitely something that's still an issue um, for me and for my siblings, um, but as far as when we were younger, um, we all knew it. We um, we would joke around about it, but it was our reality. And um, we always, you know, my mom always taught us, you know, to make the best out of life because someone else has this way worse than us. She sounds um, so amazing because, yeah. you know, it could have been so many other ways. It could have yeah. gone so many other ways. She could have had a much um, more, you know, kind of either defeatist or angry attitude about everything, mm-hmm. but she found a way as hard as it was to not just feed you all, but to really give you a sense of, you know, the importance of giving back and understanding what the, mm-hmm. you know, what other people were, were dealing with around you. It's really yes. incredible. And look what it's, you know, look how yeah. you've decided to use that in your life. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Well, and think of, I mean, just your own experience, Deb, as a single mom, you yeah. have a daughter who's uh, my niece, Sophie, who, you know, you put everything you have into, right? And it's, and even that, you have, just having one is, it's a lot yeah, of work. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I, whenever I hear a, of a single parent with more than one child, I just like, I, I can't even yeah. imagine. Yeah. And she gave us so many opportunities. I mean, even in middle school, we had the privilege of going to a camp um, and it was an overnight camp. And she made sure every single one of us, even though we were years behind each other, one year behind Every single one of us were able to go to that camp. Is your mom still alive? Um, oh, yes. Okay. Um, and um, speaking about the waste, this camp, I can remember, mm-hmm. had every time we ate, they had an awesome little um, conversation at lunchtime and breakfast where they would put buckets, right? And we were set up into teams, and they would put buckets, and we would have to put our waste after every meal in the bucket, right? And so the, the team that wasted the most food was losing. They weighed yep. the food. They weighed it. Um, yes, wow. after every dinner yep. of the day, and so it was an awesome eye opener to see that yeah. we went from fifty pounds on the first day of waste to like thirteen pounds because it was conscious. Yeah. We were thinking yeah. about it. You know, yeah. we didn't get as much food, and we ate what we could. So it's definitely a conversation that needs to be talked mm-hmm. about of the waste that we. You know, waste food, so much food. So maybe we do a competition with restaurants, Alex. I think that'd be, wait, wait, think that'd be a great at the idea. end of the day. Yes. That's, a, that's a great concept. But it has concept. gotten better. I mean, I'm under the yeah. impression that, uh, the, you know, the planning and just a whole, for a whole bunch of, you know, well, technological it's, reasons, you're able to sort of, you know, well, you reduce know, it, but obviously not The cryovacking of meats, um, you know, just having a good hold on your inventory. I mean, there's a lot of different practices that can help that. I mean... No restaurant likes to waste, you know, because it's a waste of money. It, you know, I hate wasting food just in general, um, bread especially. I, I lose my mind because, <laughs> you know, knowing that someone could be eating this or someone made this, um, you know, and then it's going into the garbage to me is just it's such a it's such a shame. But I think that the education's also out there too, where a lot of chefs who aren't working in large cities, 
they have access to food banks and they have access to programs where they can donate their food. And more and more DC chefs Central are starting DC, yeah, like that. Yeah. Martha's Table. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's more and more of these programs starting to starting to arise. And the other thing that is, um, I think, really incredible is just the movement in this country uh, where uh, home cooks, chefs are moving away from processed foods, from prepackaged yes. meals. And we're starting to kind of rediscover what it means to cook at home again mm -hmm. and utilize real, food. real, real food. food, real ingredients, fresh vegetables. More farms are opening up. More places are making cheese. More places are making produce that, you know, 20 years ago you could barely find. And and so that's all being – it's being recycled a lot more than just a bunch of prepackaged garbage that, you know, is cheap and you know you said this just a second ago i mean in the country right now it's easier to find to go to mcdonald's and buy a, a burger for a dollar than it is to go to the supermarket and and make a healthy meal for your family and that's what a lot of families have been doing uh to keep themselves going um cuz economically it makes sense but now we're finding that ingredients are starting to get more affordable um a whole foods great example with amazon cutting the cost on those prices you know cutting the cost on the food so it makes it more accessible to people um, and then I think just with the internet and with people being able to research these things, mm -hmm. they can find out what's actually out there and what they can do and where they can donate their food. And it's really helped out a lot. And there, there's a whole organization. There's an organization called Wholesome Wave. I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with them or not. No, but no. their whole the whole mission. It started by um, uh, a chef named Michelle Nishan. If you know that name, out of New York. Anyway, their whole mission is to make fresh fruits and vegetables affordable yeah. to everybody yeah. in the country who needs them. So it's everything from farmers markets to, you know, grocery stores to individually, you know, con to direct to the consumer. Uh, but they're really passionate about yeah. this issue, and, and they know that there's a demand for it. Yeah, and it's just a lack of, you know, lack of access to it. It's interesting too. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time traveling, and some of the places I've been. When you talk to people in places like Thailand and Southeast Asia and Indonesia about how we get our food, it blows their minds, you know, because they're going to the market. Everything is fresh. Everything is grown, you know, within 100 miles, even less in most places. You know, there's a, a chicken from the yard over here. There's a, a, a papaya tree right there, and that's where the, the papayas it's are It's the main from. place to shop. Exactly. Right? So, the yeah, the idea that, that you're getting food from, you know, another country and being shipped over – uh, and you're not making using fresh vegetables is mm -hmm. just ridiculous. They look at you like you're crazy. They're like, how could you? How do you eat like that? You is know, is there I mean? hope for us? I, I would. I hope so. I, I hope so. But you know, some of these some of these places are also some of the most impoverished. You know, the yeah. the, the you know there, there's so many impoverished people. Uh, you know, in, in, in those re well, in many regions of the world, but in, th in that region of the world, that still eat healthier than we do in the United States. Fresh vegetables, fresh meat. They and and they make it. They, you know, it's it's tough, and they make it work. But they're eating healthier, healthier stuff, well, and it's just strange. It's strange. And our, I'm sorry. And our health, our disease level probably reflects that. Yeah. I mean, obesity. Right? You got to think about heart disease. Yeah. You know, diabetes. All of it. Just from a, I would say, loose from a hunger point of view, we always think of obesity as you know the other side of the same coin. These are families that don't have the resources or the information to make the best choices. So you have, you know, people think there's a paradox or an irony to low-income uh, communities uh, dealing with obesity, but it's actually kind of pretty much what you would expect if you don't have the resources to buy healthy food I mean, or, or, the, or the options. Even even if you do have the resources, you may not have the stores. I mean, it is getting better. I'm like Alex said, you mean, I mean, I work, um, I've been working closely with the SNAP program in Connecticut. And so, and that's food stamps. And so um, they do, they have a great initiative now where you can go to a farmer's market and they double your SNAP. If you pay with your SNAP card, they double your um, purchase um, if you buy fruits and vegetables. So they're definitely, you know, um, you know, taking heed to that issue. Um, but you, you got to think about that single mother that has five children, right? And they all need snack and they all need... You know, after school, you know, stuff. And um, if you think about a mother with five children, you know, between choosing from a bag of six apples, right, that costs six twenty nine, and then you have uh, snack cakes that have a larger amount in it um, and that cost less, um, you now, you're now thinking about quantity and what can feed the kids the most. Um, and so that's where the position that she had to take on it, I got to feed all five, right? 
I can't just so it's it's really the social behavior of it. If you it's survival mode. Everyone's in survival mode. And so if we get to a point where we can eat healthier and, and teach our communities, you know, have chefs come out, do groceries um, shopping with them, give them budget sheets and talk about how their money can stretch. Like our Cooking Matters program. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's going to take and it's not going to be overnight. So is this it's something gonna take a process. Is this something you're actually involved in through the mayor through your job in the mayor's office? So I did SNAP I was I was doing some work with WIC when I was at okay. the Health and Human Which Services. is the women, infants and children supplemental yes. feeding program. Yes. Yep. Um and so that's kind of where I was coming from with that. With the mayor's office, I'm able all the resources that we was able to get through networking and going to events and um I'm able to bring to the, the mayor's office and share with um a larger population of people. Um, but I'm still going out and finding, you know, programs and um, going to, I go back to WIC and they do a, a Mommies and Me chef class where they're having a chef come and nice. cook with the kids and the moms. Um, so I still attend those things because it's nice to know about. It's free, right? And we got to get the, the people out there to see mm-hmm. how beneficial it is. Well, you know, um, you, so. you, you both have such different jobs, but you're both really building community in different kinds of ways. Uh, when I hear you talking about, you know, the outreach that you're doing, it's really about strengthening community. And Alex, I, you know, as you talk about, you know, the purpose, like why you create Lucky Buns or why you've created your pop-ups in the past, it's so, as you said, when you first sat down, it's so people have a place to come and be together. Exactly. I mean, it, that's what it's all about. It's about, you know, people being together and people eating together. Um, you know, food has this great ability to connect people from many different places, different uh, social classes, different socioeconomic structures. You can sit down at a meal and, uh, and connect to people. Um, and it, and it, just, it has this magical ability to just to make people feel good, um, which is you know, why I love what I do, because I get to see people enjoying themselves. Um, and uh, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a great uniting factor between people, food is. So, um, and and you've, you've also kind of traveled the world to both, I think, because you like to travel, but also uh, yeah. because, you know, you, you learn a lot about food. I think it was the Washington Post decide you, I think, described you as a restless soul. Both I'm definitely inside, a restless soul. Both inside <laughs> and outside the kitchen. Uh, but but it's also, it's given you the ability to bring a diversity. And I think, uh, you know, by extension, a kind of an inclusiveness, if you're bringing foods and ideas from all around the mm. world to a community, that exposes that community to oh yeah i mean I, travel travel to me gives me it gives me purpose um you know i'm i'm uh i'm, I'm very much kind of, of a like an an existentialist perspective where you know for me life is about going out and trying to figure out what your true purpose is it's not just kind of an, an essential feature of of you know of who you are that you really need to go out and discover it and the more that you can interact with other people who are completely different from you that live different lives and have different religions and different cultures and different uh, traditions, um, it helps you understand not yourself, but it helps put into perspective your life and the life of the people around you. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've actually never, I've never gone to a place to learn about food. It's always been something that has come to me just through the love of being in a place where you go somewhere and you experience something that's so magical and wonderful that you just want to keep doing it over and over and over again. Uh, you know, Thailand, when I went to Thailand the first time uh, over 10 years ago, I went to Thailand because I was going through a really rough time in my life. And I, and I had, I didn't know what my purpose was going to be. And I bought a one-way ticket to Thailand and I, I had no hotel. Uh, I had no itinerary. How long ago was this? Uh, this was oof, uh, 2000. Just about 2010-ish, 2010. We're just going to go wherever that journey I was you. going out, and I was just going to figure out what I wanted to do, and I didn't have much of a plan. I just kind of like and, – and it wasn't even that I had always wanted to go to Thailand. It was I just want to go somewhere so far away and yeah. so out of my and comfort so different, zone and right? so yeah. different and just figure, figure out what I want to do. And um, – Literally right off the bat, the first the first day, uh, you know, that I was in Thailand, um, I, I sat at this this uh, wonderful street stall, and, and <laughs> it's kind of a funny story because I came in, I had done no research, and I and I flew in, and it was in the middle of of Sunkran, 
which is the the New Year celebration. I didn't realize this. So when I when I get off the the bus after going to the airport, it's just you know it's just celebrations, parties, and and in Sankran they you you wipe. Uh, ash on people's faces, and there's water guns, and everyone's celebrating. And I didn't even realize this was going on. And <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's just crazy, and I'm like, "This is insane! Like, this is this is so wonderful! Like, everyone's just celebrating." And <laughs> and I had I didn't, yeah, I just thought, well, it's good to see you guys too, you know. Um, but I I I that was my first like ten minutes in the country was this incredible celebration and just of life and of. New Year and rebirth. It was. It was like very. It, very, it meant a lot because you know it felt very much like I was meant to be here at this moment, and uh, I was still a little jet lagged. So I went to sleep, and when I woke up, uh, you know, in the <laughs> in the middle of Bangkok, which is one of the biggest cities and largest cities in the world, there was not a soul on the street. It, and I had just gone to bed in the middle of this like crazy party and, that was all over the city. And then it, it, whatever time I'd woke up, and I didn't even know what time it was. It was early in the morning. Not a soul on the street. It was quiet. All the streets were clean. It was just this very weird feeling. And there was one. And you were sleeping outside? No, I, at the hotel. Oh, okay. Like I came out, you <laughs> know, afterwards. Okay. Just sleeping on the, you know, sleeping <laughs> on the street. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I celebrated a little, t- celebrate a little you too much, down. you know. <laughs> Um, no, I, I just I went outside and it was it was so weird, like the juxtaposition of like the couple hours before and then and then where it was now. And uh, there was a street stall that was open and I walked in and growing up um, eating Thai food, Thai green curry was always my favorite. And, you know, I'm like, I know Thai green curry, I've eaten Thai green curry you know, a thousand right. times. I know how it should taste. And I, and I remember sitting at this stall ordering Thai green curry by myself, not a single person on the street. And, and taking a bite and immediately realizing that everything I know about Thai cooking is wrong. Just in one bite, mm. the texture, the flavor, uh, you know, here's something that I thought I knew, a dish I thought I knew. And that registered with so you. So it just hit me. It hit me wow. so hard. And um, and it it I kind of started going through this. I was there for a couple months the first time I went. And I just found myself constantly wanting to figure out how to cook this food. Everywhere I went, I just wanted to learn the nuances of it. I wanted to learn how to make these flavors because they were so beautiful. They were so wonderful. And it was more that it surprised me because I, I didn't go there looking for that. But I found it. Yeah, so when, when you were in Thailand and it was your first trip there and you don't know anybody or the language, how did you go about the process of actually learning? Well, you just have to try your best to connect. You know, the thing is, like, when you, you work, there's so many consistent, like, I understand what the people that I was learning from were doing and, you know, we're kind of showing each other, we're kind of working our way through it, but because I know how to cook and they know how to cook, there's that, there's that kind of constant. How do you even find them? Well, I mean, I, I, honestly, what I, what I started doing, um, cause I was there for so long is there were certain restaurants that I would go to a lot and I would try to ask questions and I had like a, a, a you know, a, a, a Thai American to Thai book yeah. and I would try to ask questions and you could, you know, you, I would say I'm a chef, I, you know, can I watch, can I watch, can I watch? And the, the Thais are incredible. They're such welcoming. It's such a welcoming culture. Um, and, and so many times it wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be like this, you know, a couple weeks of like skepticism immediately just come in the kitchen, watch just this openness, this incredible openness to, to which, which I, you know, I feel that when other chefs come into my restaurant, I'll come like, come and take a look at the kitchen and we'll, you know, we'll cook together. This is just a camaraderie that, that chefs have. And, you know, I would just sit and watch, I would just watch and try to ask questions and ask, what is this ingredient? What is that ingredient? Uh, and just try to learn as much as I can, not just about the food itself, but like, you know, why? Like, why do you cook this food? You know, what? how important is this? You know, what do you, what do you cook it for? You know, there's so many different, um, uh, you know, cultural connotations to the food that are cooked. And it's important when you're learning how to cook food from a place that, you, you, that you're not from, that you're also learning the why, not just the how, but the why. Because the why is sometimes the most important part, not the how. The cooking is cooking. That's technical. The why is everything. It's the emotion. It's the heart. The why soul. Do you make that it's choice? the tradition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and uh, you need to know that so that you can fully understand the flavors the right way. Mm-hmm. Like you need to know. You need to understand the palate, and you need to understand the mindset, and you need to understand the why more than the how. And so that's that's what I try to what I try to learn when I when I cook with people is is not just like. Here, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Since then, I try to go back at least once a year. I always think about it as it, it awakens all of your senses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all like We just don't have the fire. distractions, right? Exactly. You don't have yeah. the phones and the and, stuff. And the it's smells like, and the, everything, yeah. all your senses are 
really come alive. Mm-hmm. And so it's it makes sense that you you know found that there. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I mean, and mm-hmm. and there is there's that exp- you know one of the kind of one of the mantras that I that I live by, which is which is something my father told me, and and I I hold this very close to my heart. And he said, imagine the greatest day you've ever had in your life. You can replicate that where, that day somewhere in the world if you have the courage to go out and find it. So there's an experience out there that is new and different and uh, equally as kind of, I think, religious in the sense of it really resonates with you somewhere. But you have to go and find it. You've got to go out there and get it. You've got to go off the beaten path. You've got to try something new. You've got to put yourself out there. Uh, and you can learn a lot about yourself by by living with that that's the way i try to live my life is like mm-hmm. you know what let's just figure this out let's try this dish let's meet this person i've never met before let's walk into this random place and mm-hmm. say hi to everybody and, and i think that's yeah. what purpose does you know when you know that there's you have this purpose right you have a greater purpose you oh, you're constantly looking for you know you know that there has to something has to come out of you know this experience out of so you're constantly craving it and looking for it and wanting more and mm-hmm. and so i think um that's what purpose does for me as well mm-hmm. i mean and i'm constantly just seeing how could i better my you know better better my journey and what can i do to to help this one person that i meet or what can i do to impact this one situation you know it's constantly this you know what can i i want to do more i could do more let's do it loser are you, are you um what you're doing right now at the mayor's office is this a, a stepping stone to something Else that you're hoping? Oh, definitely. Are you, are you gaining some skills that you want to apply to something else in this definitely, space? Definitely, definitely. I've um, I do a lot of extracurricular um out of my job, so I'm involved in a lot of um, you know, organizations and um, committees, and and I do um, I, I try to, I know my purpose, I know where I want to go, and so um, you know, my purpose is not local. Um, I can, I, I definitely know I'm going to be international and global and, um, you know, just everything. Every time I think about, you know, where I want to go, I want to go to Thailand, right? I want to go. go to, let's go right now. Um, I want to go with all of us. Um, and I know that I can, right? I know that I can. So it's always, you know, how could I set myself up for greatness? How can I set myself up? For that next step. So I am going back to school for my master's okay. for Homeland Security. So what's the connection between what you're doing now and your uh, your aspiration to get into Homeland Security and to study it? So it all, it's all built on, you know, what my purpose is and where I want to go as far as my goals. Um, I want to possibly go up to the state level or, you know, um, even the, the president, you know, the White House. So um, I'm going to be um, studying my um, master's in Homeland Security. Um, so that can increase my chances of getting a position um, at a higher level, such as the state or um, the White House. You know, I, I am very spiritual and I prayed to God my um, sophomore year of college. I said, I want to um, get into my job. Right. Um, and I want to work in the city um, at least two years after I get my first job. Um, and then I said, after the city, I'm going straight to the state. Right. And and I made these goals for myself, not thinking that, you know, I will be pushed into the city less than a year after graduating. Right. Um, but I knew that that's where I wanted to head towards. So I lined up myself. I networked. I talked to people. I prayed. I prayed. I prayed. I prayed. I, I, I just continued to, you know, do everything to make myself a better person, learn from people, learn from situations. Um, and just the energy. I just love waking up in the morning. It's a blessing to me to wake up in the morning to a new day and say, what's going to happen today? What can I do today? Right. To, to, to you're, you're lucky you have that because, you know, a lot of people don't have that when they wake up. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you're for whatever reason, the combination of your upbringing or just who you, your DNA, whoever mm-hmm. you are, makes you like, you know, want to figure out what every day is going to bring and how. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, and that's you're oh, lucky. That's uh, a great thing. I wanted to ask you both kind of generationally. I, st- I started the conversation by saying you really represent, I think, a new generation of, of leaders. What you're describing, Luz, is that uh, do you feel like it's typical of your generation or atypical? Uh, are a lot of your uh, peers and, uh, you know, other folks your age, are they thinking about this in the same way? Um, as far as my peers, I, um, I surround myself with like-minded people. Um, and so we have these conversations. We talk about, okay, what our goals are going to be. 
what we're going to do, how can we contribute to each other's purpose, right? And so my as far as my peers go, we all have the same mindsets. You know, how we're going to get there um, is different. We're not all the same people, but we make sure that we are intentional about where we want to go um, and what we do to get there. Um, as far as the generation, I think that is atypical um, just because I'm the first in my family for a lot of things. Um, I've seen a lot. I've experienced a lot, um, you know, through incarceration, um, abuse, um, domestic violence, um, homelessness. Um, I've experienced a lot as a young lady um, and being the first to graduate in my in my family, um, being the first to receive awards, being the first to go out of the country. Um, it's atypical to me. Um and for my family to see that. And so being the first in all those elements, I know that I'm breaking some barriers down. I'm breaking some walls down. And so I've taken on the responsibility, and, and I'm just going to go ahead forward with it. Um, but as far as our generation, we have a lot of things that are um, kind of opposing us saying that we can do it, right? There's a lot of, you know, violence happening. There's a lot of, you know, things that are saying that, you know, young people, are just you know the we're all about technology and we are constantly in our phones and we don't you know we we think we know everything and we they called us Generation X at one point right and so it's kind of we have the world against us in some aspects but as you it takes those people that can stand out those young people that can stand out and say I'm gonna make a difference and now right like when you look now, at the students in Parkland Florida yeah. right as a result of the the gun violence who have you know taken this issue and of all the things our country's been through on this gun issue, uh, all of a sudden, you know, a new set of people are paying attention because these students have stood up. It's not clear how far, far they'll get, but, you know, just this notion that there are these new leaders that are saying, we're not going to go away. You've got to pay attention to this issue. How about generation, generationally for you, Chef? Uh, well, how do you think about your role in the broader... In I mean, well, I want to, I'd say, I, I hope that I hope it's not atypical, you know, first and foremost. I think that there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, but I do think that what we have now, uh, no matter what generation you live in, is a, is a platform to advocate things that you're passionate about. Um, you know, whether you're the students uh, in Florida or whether you're advocating, uh, you know, for, uh, for you know, to, to help cure food insecurity. There is a there's a way that you can get to a larger group of people, and I think that our our generations have more information at their disposal than mm -hmm. there 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 ever has been. Um, and the world is a much smaller place it feels than it ever has been. You have access to people in other countries, and mm -hmm. you have access to information that uh, they previously would have kind of been like shushed under the rug a little bit, or you really had to go and like find it, go to the library to like research. Nowadays, you can just kind of kind of type it up and and uh, and figure it out. But you're seeing that this advocacy is having some really – a really large impact, um, you know, bringing up um, the, the shooting in, in Florida. Look at, look at Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, no longer selling assault rifles, and, uh, and I believe they just raised the minimum age to buy a rifle to, to 21. Of any kind. Of, of any kind, yeah. Got it. They didn't have to do that. Right. The, but they knew it was right. It wasn't, it, it wasn't dictated by any kind of a law, and, and that was because of people speaking out. And saying this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, previously, they those kids probably wouldn't have had the platform to change hearts and minds. Um, you know, I think that our generation is constantly being told to put people into categories, and I think that we actively try to fight that. You know, you're supposed to be doing this. This is what you can and cannot do. This is what you're allowed to do. This is what you can say and can't say. And I think that we actively fight that in, in so many different aspects, so many different aspects, whether it's violence, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, advocacy for rights, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I, I like the fact that, um, you know, people in our generation are adamantly opposed to being told what to do, which I think the older generation doesn't always like, you know, but <laughs> but um, but it's good and it should be that way because we should always be questioning what the status quo is, what we're doing, and if we're doing it right and if we're doing it wrong. And if you have a platform, use it. Use it. Yeah. And, and it's ex more exactly. accepted now. You know, it, it's who was it? The, the basketball player who was, you know, told to shut up and dribble. Right. LeBron James. Was it LeBron, LeBron James? James? Yeah. Oh. yeah. You know, 
he has a voice. He wants to use it, right? You're a chef. You have a voice. You, you have a vo- everybody has yeah. a voice, and it, it also just reminds me of really the underpinnings of share our strength because when we started the organization, we believed that everybody has strength to share, mm-hmm. and yeah. if we give them an easy way to do it, a vehicle to do it, most people really want yeah. to. And, and it's interesting, I think, that when you when you hear people talking, not just from a, a, the standpoint of like, oh, I'm speaking on behalf of an organization. When you hear people just talking about what they personally believe in, um, you realize that we're more alike than we are different. Yes. And and it doesn't matter if you live in in Europe or in Asia or in Africa or South America or Antarctica or wherever you live. Um, it may seem far away. The culture may seem completely different. The language is different. But our needs and wants and desires are all essentially the same. Mm-hmm. We all want to take care of one another. We all want to help one another. Um, and it, it seems I think a lot of people focus so much more on our differences than they focus on the things that we're actually connect us. And, and Why? Why do people do that? I think it's easier to, it's easier to put a label on someone and say you are somebody. Um, you know, it's easier to say, you know, you dress a certain way, so you've got to be a certain way, you know what I mean? Or you grew up somewhere, you've got to be a certain way because it's just easier to label people like that, to say, I've got you pegged. I understand you. I understand everything about you. But we're all unique, interesting individuals. And it takes a lot of time and effort, I think, to, I mean, to get to know everybody. You don't have to get to know people, but you just understand that everyone, I think, really if the if their core is a good person trying to do good things and just live their life in a in a in a good way um and i think that's a harder thing to do is to open yourself up and it might be a personal thing like people don't want to open themselves up to other people um but i think it's just easier to label people than it is to just open yeah. yourself up and learn about other people i think it's accountability too yeah. you know where how i've come up it's it's really been um survival you know and we have to survive, you know, in this life with getting resources. And, and and so a lot of things that I've seen is, you know, if someone needs something, um, a lot of people think about, oh, but I may need that, so I can't, you know, give it because I may need it. Um, but, you know, one thing, like I said, I go back to my mama. She taught me, you know, you give if you can give. You give it um, because you never know when you may need it. Mm-hmm. And so... If you have, you know, something, just give it and be accountable for that other person. Um, and I think just to go of putting other people in categories, when you put someone in a category different from you, you're no longer accountable for them, right? So whatever happens to them, um, it's like, oh, they're that. Yeah. So I, they they yeah. don't apply, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, that's them. That's yes. their thing. I, I would never do that. Mm-hmm. I would never be able to live my life that way. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's really having accountability for, you know, the next person. Because I love this song. It says we all bleed the same. Mm. We all do. Right. 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 And so just like he said, we have so many more similarities than differences. And I have this friend that I met at University of St. Joseph's. She's from Saudi Arabia. Right. And her teachings and her are um, different than mine. But we, I, to this day, I love this. And she's an older woman. She has kids. But she's amazing, you know. And we were able to, we didn't wait to talk about, you know, our beliefs until, like, months after we met each other. We were just talking about, like, what kind of color do you, like, like where do you like to go? Where can we go? Like, and, and that wasn't beliefs and all that other stuff that put us into categories wasn't what we wanted to focus on. We wanted to focus on what we love to do, what attracted each other, attracted us to each other, right? And so I think if we start with that, the other stuff won't even matter. You, you, you both referenced some kind of tough times that you'd been through, which were kind of, you know, um, it sounds like they were formative, and it sounds like as tough as they were, um, the, the crisis that precipitated you to fly <laughs> to, to Thailand and some of your experiences, they, in a lot of ways, they kind of, those things make us who we are. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. You yeah. know, I don't know whether you would trade them away. If you could, maybe you would. But uh, they still they were. It sounds like they had a lot to do with you. You talk about it in terms of survival. They had a lot to do with in terms of the mm-hmm. strength that, that you ended up with. I definitely wouldn't take it away. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. And at the end of the day, you know, it made me who I am. Some topics I'm able to speak from empathy. Right. 
I'm able to identify with some people in ways that um, I may not have been able to if I didn't experience some of those things. So I believe I it made me who I am. So do do we do we get to say that the Youth Ambassador Program gets some credit for who you are? Oh, definitely. Okay, good. That oh, definitely. That makes my day. Definitely. So, well, it, I, you know, I really, I think you're the. We had uh, Alana Davidson on, who was a Youth Ambassador. I don't know if you met her. She worked in New Hampshire, but we've had quite an amazing crew come through, share our strength, and the fact that you know. Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation has spent close to $10 million, I think it's $9.7 million, supporting the Youth Ambassador Program, supporting hunger activities in you know, all the, most of the big states around the country. Uh, it really makes a difference, and we've, gotta, you know, we've got to get young people to say, I want to be accountable for making mm-hmm. change, just well, as, as you've just said. You know, it, it's funny to me because uh, you know, people sometimes are afraid of bringing youth in because they're going to have a different point of view. They're going to push back. But smart companies like Sodexo and like Share Strength and they like others. They got the key. Well, they understand that they're actually mm-hmm. going to be taking over the world. So we, we, <laughs> we, we, we really have to invest um, and we have to learn from them. But, you know, so many other things are at play there. You have to have the confidence to bring young people in, I think. You have to have the security to feel like, you know, uh, it's okay to ha- have a different point of view and you're going to learn from them. So... You know, I, I, I think it's a great thing that we're, we're able to um, listen to really what young people have to say. Uh, they're the future, and they have a different perspective that we need to hear. Yeah. Well, I agree. Yeah, uh, it's been great having you both here. I want to uh, kind of finish where we started by talking a little bit more about food. And I got intrigued when, <laughs> when Alex, when you were talking yeah, yeah. about uh, traveling the world, I was just curious. Like, what's the and when you you so vividly talked about that one bite in Thailand that you know I changed everything best. for you. What what are some of the most surprising things you've learned or surprising food experiences you've had as you? Um, I think from as a chef, the the biggest thing I learned is that you know when you come from a professional kitchen with all this kitchen equipment, a lot, a lot of times, like, you know, we're, we're kind of enamored with these toys. We're having our toys, our sous vide machines and these grills. And it's, you know, I've had plenty of times where I've, you know, I've walked in the kitchen. Ah, I can't, I can't, I don't have this. I don't have the equipment to do this stuff. Whereas at the end of the day, the best food in the world is made using the, the most primitive equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, that is consistent around the world. And, uh, one of the things that I've learned traveling is is don't don't rest your laurels on the equipment you have or the knives you have. It's all inside of you and it's all in your hands. And those are the two the only things that you need are what you have on you, and you can make good food. And that is that is it. And you know, I, a lot of I think a lot of chefs try to try to put the onus on a lot of the equipment that they have, but you don't need that. You really don't need that stuff. Um, and and just the the passion. I mean, I like. I just love going to another country and just seeing how passionate people are about just about, I mean, it's just like food is like the greatest thing oh, in the world, <laughs> you know, and people, you know, like you can, you be talking, you can be talking to someone, you have no idea what they're saying and they're speaking to you in a different language, but you know exactly what they're saying because you can feel it. You can feel the passion. You can feel that excitement. Um, and, and I know what that feels like and, and I can relate to it. And, and that is just such a consistent thing around the, you know, around the world, no matter what you're cooking. Um, you know, you can always, you can always tell, like if you've eaten a dish that you've never had before, like it feels like a a grandma's made it, you know, it has that, that has that sense of like being homemade and you can just connect to it. Um, it's, it's just the, it's the best. It's the best. It's just, that's everywhere. It's Alex. I, um, I won't start down this road on Mexico because I could talk forever about it. But, you know, I had, I think, for me, a similar experience that you did going to Mexico with one idea, ending up going to school there and traveling extensively for my whole life in Mexico and being everywhere and trying everything to eat. And I remember one of my very first experiences there was I was going to school in Jalapa, Veracruz, and I was living with the host family. And we were on our way to school, and every morning we would see a guy on the corner with a little cart, and he would was giving people orange juice, you know, fresh squeezed orange juice, yeah. which at the time seemed like I had never really seen anybody squeeze the juice. And, you know, 
But then when I realized, so one day I went and I had a glass and it was delicious. It was very, very fresh orange juice. What I realized was he was just using the same cup for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Right? He was like, <laughs> when, I, when I finished it, he just gave it to the next woman behind her. And then the guy behind him, I'm like, is that what everyone's doing every day? But you know what? It, it quickly, I, I kind of calmed down about it. It worked. Um, it, it worked for them. It, it, it worked. And, but, you know, the, the way you talk about... Um, you know, connecting in another country at the time, I didn't have much Spanish. You know, it, I wasn't able to speak very well, understand it. Now I'm pretty, you know, pretty fluent in the language. But the experience was so transformative for me. It was such a, and I went there much like I just went. I saw a sign and said, "You want to study in Mexico?" I said, "Okay, it yeah. sounds good." That was it. Yeah, let's do it. Life's and, weird, and, right? And the food, you know, that's what I cook at home. But the the, the experience for me was so transformational. Um, and you, you just want everybody to have that, you know, because yeah. you, you, you know it's so special. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it, 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 and and this is what travel does. It, this is what travel does. It, it just it invigorates you. It's electric. It, it's, it's in every part of your body, you know. And I can even tell you thinking about it, just telling that story. You were kind of reliving totally. those experiences. It gives you goosebumps, like when you when you think about it. We just you're, you're just with other people. You're with other people and experiencing these new things. But we're also and struggling with, to relate and trying to relate. You know? But but you're but you're also you are relating. But you're figuring it out. You're just figuring it out yeah. as you go. And it and it puts so much in perspective. It puts life in perspective. Right through this vehicle that connects everybody. And that's what food does. Uh, Luz, you're stuck at the table with three foodies. Give us your, give us <laughs> no, your, give us your favorite food experience. I'm just taking it all in. You know, I, you can't, I love different foods. I'd try everything if I could. I, I love good food. I mean, um, one experience that I had with um, food is my, I'm, I'm half Spanish, so I'm, my great-grandma is still living in Puerto Rico and um, she ended up before the um, storm and everything happened. She came down for two weeks, and um, you know my family they would cook rice and beans and you know pork and panil and and all these good things and and I you know I would it, that's what I grew up on. But when this lady, I might mind you, she's like eighty something or nineties. She came and she I watched her, um, and she was in my uncle's kitchen. And she was just going and going. She didn't use a measuring cup. She did not use, I mean, she was just pouring and, and going and washing and, and cooking and, and then tasting. And then, I mean, this lady was amazing. And it was just so amazing to see how she functioned in the kitchen. That sounds like and she didn't need equipment. Just what I was saying. No, exactly. She no. didn't need equipment. Yeah, she yeah. just had she her She didn't hands. measure right. anything. Yeah. She And then she tasted throughout the thing, whole thing. So when all the food was done, and, and I mean, it just tasted like there was nothing could be ever wrong with it. When it was all done, she washed her hands. All the dishes were clean. The kitchen was clean. And she sat back. And she was like, I'm not going to eat you eat. Yeah, that's good. Wow. Big story. <laughs> and like, I love that because that resonates so much. Because my grandmother in, in Mississippi, she like makes the best biscuits and the best. Um, mm. uh, she makes this buttermilk cake. Which no one knows how to make. It's just like four ingredients, and if you ask her, she's like, "Well, you stir it twenty-one times," <laughs> and th- technically that doesn't make any sense, right? Like from a technical <laughs> standpoint, there's no. It doesn't make sense because from a scientific like baking standpoint, you will cook it until it's at a certain point, or if you learn in a cooking school. But no, you have to stir it twenty-one times, and I swear to God, if you stir it twenty-two times, fact. It doesn't come out right. And I don't know why. There's no rhyme or reason for it. She just has, she's like a pinch of this, a pinch of that, and you stir it 21 times. And my brother tried to make it one time, and it, it was fine, but it wasn't the same. And she's like, oh, you must have stirred it 22 times. That's what she said. You must have stirred 22. So she's like, it's, it, and, and, uh, and you find that everywhere. I mean, every, every grandmother, every great grandmother has that, like, it's not, it's not, that's the why. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah. the heart. It's not just the ingredients. It's the heart. That's the important part. Well, I think yeah. We one. may be headed to Lucky Buns for brunch Saturday. Saturday. <laughs> well, I'm here until so. 5 so okay. uh, on Friday, so, so I'm going to try well. to come. Let's, let's get everybody, and, everyone in. That's great. So um, it's going to be awesome. And Liz Thank Holmes, you. Um, actually working and making policy and making an impact in the mayor's office in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, formerly a youth ambassador for Share Our Strengths No Kid Hunger campaign, and um, supported by um, the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. Yes. Thank you so much for being with thank us. Thank you. Thank you. It's, I mean, being an ambassador was an awesome experience. I will recommend it to any young person. 
um, awesome eye-opener, and I just thank you guys for this opportunity. Debbie Shore, thanks as always oh, this for being was fun today. part of our yeah, broadcast. Good time. Good this time. is Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for listening to this special millennial edition of Add Passion and Stir, brought to you by the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. I'm Chandra Jenkins. Fueled by consistent access to nutritious food, children who learn, play, and thrive are more likely to achieve the education, health, and employment necessary for a stable future. And that means they're less likely to experience hunger in the future. Yet today, over 42 million Americans, 13 million of them children, go hungry every year in the United States. That's one reason why Sodexo, the world leader in quality of life services, created the Sodexo Stop Hunger Foundation. Together, we mobilize experts, innovators, volunteers, and donors to feed children in the United States today, and we advocate for policies that ensure no child is hungry again tomorrow. We believe today's youth can be the generation to end hunger, so we're investing in young people to help them start and grow innovative solutions. Please visit HelpStopHunger.org to learn about ways we support youth leaders. And while you're at HelpStopHunger.org, check out the Alliance to End Hunger's Youth Opportunity Resource Inventory, a one-stop shop for young people seeking ways to join the fight against hunger. Thank you. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.